Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press. Sunbury Press publishes print and electronic books under 10 different imprints in a variety of categories, so wide wherever books are sold. This episode is another in a series concerning our new book, a compilation about the coronavirus impacts entitled After the Pandemic, Visions of Life Post-COVID-19. The topic of our show today concerns healthcare and politics. Our panel of guests includes Doc, Dr. Scott Zuckerman, who's been practicing medicine for over 30 years. He's been board certified in pediatrics, pediatric emergency medicine, and medical acupuncture. Scott's first book, Dreams of My Conrads, was awarded first place in the nonfiction category of the 2015 Utah Original Writing Composition and was published in 2017 by Sunbury Press. Scott's chapters in the book are public health, civil liberties, and life after the pandemic, and medicine in the post-corona apocalypse era. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Lawrence. Award-winning broadcaster, journalist, and author Pat LaMarche stepped from behind the microphone to campaign for governor in 1998. LaMarche translated her Election success in the ballot access, becoming the first and only woman to launch a political party in Maine. The March was the first green, or was the green candidate for U.S. Vice President in 2004. Her chapter is entitled "Politics Makes No Bedfellows." Welcome, Pat Lamarche. Thanks for having me, Lawrence. All right, and we've got Dr. Will Delavan, who teaches economics at Lebanon Valley College and lives in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, with his family. He thanks his insightful health economics class students for their ideas for this chapter about the impacts of COVID-19 on health insurance. Welcome, Will. Hope you're feeling hope you're feeling better. Uh, thanks, Lawrence. So um, we've got quite a group here, and I know that healthcare, and especially health insurance, is such a huge topic. A political topic as well, not just with the the current situation with the pandemic. But uh, what I'd like to do is start with Scott and just have you kind of give us an, an overview of what you're seeing with this pandemic, your opinion as a medical professional. Well, this is a very unique situation that the medical profession finds itself in as as well as the rest of society finds itself in. Most of the disease that we've studied, we have hundreds of years of data about the diseases. Um, And this disease, we have a few months of data. And quite honestly, the data is coming in faster than doctors can even process it. Uh, For example, in a two-week period earlier this, uh, this month, the beginning of May, over 3,000 papers on COVID-19 and surrounding syndromes involved with the COVID-19 disease were published in a two-week period, 3,000 papers. So 
that information is evolving more rapidly than um, we can process and evolving, changing on a, on a daily basis. The fact that the medical profession is challenged by that rapid evolution of this disease is leading to problems with the public digesting that rapid evolution, as far as I can see. In, in other words, there's confusion about what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do, how we should be behaving, um, what medications seem to be working, what medications seem not to be working, what sort of social distancing is necessary, what sort of social distancing is excessive. Um, so it, it's really a, a very unique circumstance. I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated to see the data that arises in the next six months and a year, and even years after that, uh, in terms of what we uh, in, in the medical profession are going to see. Uh, but one little example of that is a lot of regular checkups have been put on hold because of the need for social distancing. So a lot of screening procedures have been put on hold. What are going to be the ramifications of that as we move forward in the future? Are we going to see three or four months from now a, a spike in the number of cases of cancer that present to the medical profession? Or are we going to find out that some of our screening procedures perhaps were excessive, that we haven't seen increased numbers as we've scaled back the, the interventions that we've been doing, preventative interventions that we've been doing over the past decades, really? So it's a really fascinating circumstance, and, you know, it's, it's ever-changing. We're kind of damned if we do and damned if we don't when it comes to this uh, lockdown. I, I was seeing something today where... 600-plus doctors uh, put out a, a letter to the government about the, the a lot of the effects you just mentioned, uh, sort of the unintended consequences of the lockdown where people aren't able to follow up on everything other than COVID-19. So right. It's, uh, right. it's a crazy Actually, time. We're seeing we're, we're seeing an increase in deaths due to non-COVID-19 situations because people don't want to go to the doctor. In other words, we're seeing patients with symptoms of stroke who are not going and seeking medical attention, which is obviously misguided. Um, so it, uh, there's a lot of problems that are arising from it. And yes, you're right. What's right and wrong is not really clear. It's not really clear to doctors and it's not really clear to the general public because it's not clear to doctors who are theoretically, we're the experts, not myself personally necessarily, but physicians in general are looked upon to be the experts in how we should treat infectious diseases. And this one is presenting a problem because it's so new and there's a lot we don't know about it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was looking for a silver lining there or some good news. I didn't really hear a whole lot, but, uh, let, let's switch over to the, I wish I had let's switch over to the economic picture. Maybe there's some silver lining there, <laughs> Doctor Delavan. What's your take on this? What have you been uh, thinking about the whole thing from an economic perspective? I, I'm um, terrified. Well, I'm terrified. In, I'm trying to give. I'll give you a silver lining first. Um, so one of the problems that we we have is we don't have enough testing done. 
Um, tests are expensive. They take a long time. They're hard to administer. Um, people, there's not enough of them available. So uh, most recently, and this is the most positive thing, I have the great faith in people's ability to come up with new ideas and to innovate, not just because of money, just but because of necessity or just because we're good at producing new ideas. And uh, I think last week, or actually it was about a month ago almost, uh, where Rutgers came up with a test, a saliva test that can be used in home. And that test gives me a lot of hope. Now, I don't know if we'll be able to get it out there and get it to everyone in time, but I think um, we have to test first if we're going to want to um, get a handle on this at all. We need to be doing thorough testing. And in other places, they've been able to do a lot better job of testing. So I think... Um, if we can do that, then uh, that's the one step forward. Now, that doesn't mean we have um, – that means that if we have the testing done, we can do other um, – take other uh, measures to make sure that it doesn't spread uh, as quickly so we can isolate people. Um, two economists, uh, Paul Romer and Stephen Levitt, talked about the idea, you know, if you think about an individual who is – they test positive and they're, they're worried about losing their job or they're worried about that information being clear. They're just worried about their future. Um, their idea is to basically pay people who test positive to stay at home or to stay in isolation. And, you know, this is, that it's, it makes a lot of sense from a cost benefit standpoint. So I think there's some, there, there's a little, there's gotta be a little bit of positive light um, on the horizon. Uh, colleges and universities are planning now to try to, do something or open in the fall. Notre Dame is opening early so that they're done by um, November. Um, our smaller schools are trying to figure out what to do. And, they, and like Scott said, they don't really have um, – there's, there's an information problem. We just don't know anything. We don't know as much as we need to know. So um, if you want to hear the dark side, I can talk about that later. But those are there's, there's got to be some way forward. <laughs> well, that hasn't been the dark side yet. <laughs> we'll come back to the other. <laughs> now, two sides are dark. This is <laughs> sort of, well, anyway. I was going to say something about 50 shades of gray. Hopefully, we don't have 50 shades of dark here. <laughs> I think it's looking up now, that, all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have to laugh about something, Pat. Uh, you know, so we got the MD telling us that. The medical community really doesn't know what's going on because it's changing every day. We've got the economists worried to go back to start the economy again without testing. And you know there's an election coming up in a few months. It's already been the strangest election cycle uh, we've ever seen. Uh, the president hasn't been doing his rallies. The, uh, the assumed nominee for the Democrats has been trapped in his basement and I don't know about all the other races that have to happen, how they're happening with people uh, quarantined, locked down, uh, not interacting. So it's really taking things online. I, I can see all kinds of issues with voting. What's your take on things this fall as this, this heads in that direction? Well, I think the, the good news is, here I'll be good news. Um, I think the good news is our system has sucked for so bad that uh, we're looking for bright spots in uh, the pandemic causing our enfranchisement and uh, access to our politicians to actually improve. I think, I think it's going to help. Um, obviously, 
I don't know about you guys, but I'm a people person, and being locked in my house um, is tough for me personally because I just don't have a personality like that. Um, But it does allow people time if they're interested, if they're an engaged public, which is what we hope uh, the people who are going to have to vote will be, uh, to really study the candidates, to pay some attention to them. I think what's tough is uh, if a candidate doesn't have name recognition, but he's a uh, a really uh, peppy candidate. He, people love him. He's charismatic. I use the example in the book of Bernie Sanders, you know, little known outside of Vermont until he starts campaigning. And then he has this energy at his rallies, similar to the one that Donald Trump had, where people go to these huge, massive rallies, thousands and thousands of people get energized by the candidate. So a candidate like that is, is not going to be doing well. And uh, I think we've already seen that in the way that his campaign has um uh, you know, chilled. And so, as you said already, Donald Trump's has chilled. Um, Donald Trump has the bully pulpit, so he was able to have his uh, afternoon meetings at the White House to continue um, ramping up his base uh, and getting a message out to the base. But for other politicians, you mentioned Joe Biden, who's the presumptive uh, candidate for the Democrats, hiding in his basement. He may not have been in his basement, but how would we know? Right. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no way of knowing exactly where that guy's off at because he is so he's so silent. Um, so I think that in, in a lot of good ways, people have some time on their hands. Maybe they can study the candidates. They can study and see who's running for their local um, offices, who's running for the for the state state houses and uh, state re- state senators. And then who also is running for U.S. House of Representatives and the third or so of the United States senators that are going to potentially turn over this time. So um, I think there's an access to information that's great. And I'm hoping um, with the expanded uh, expanded mail-in ballots, which seem to be definitely the way it's going, um, that people will will be more interested in voting because there's a paper trail. Um, I know that there are some people who think for some reason I don't understand that mailing in their votes is bad. I'm not from, uh, I live in Pennsylvania now, I'm not from Pennsylvania originally. When I first came here and saw the voting machines, I I almost fainted. I mean, the same machine is carried in and out of the church or the town hall every voting time and every single time set up and brought back down again. And even without a nefarious uh, intent, I'm just curious how many times the machine gets dropped. You got to get off the truck. You got to bring it in the building. <laughs> I mean, feasibly, those machines have all been dropped seventy-five times. You know, I wouldn't want to drop my laptop seventy-five times and expect it to work. So, you know, I I just think that there are a lot of real positives to come out of the fact that the pandemic is going to drive us to a paper trail and drive us to people maybe getting more engaged in who their candidates are and what they're offering. Yeah. Well, I guess a, a question there is: Do you see? Now, we'll come back around to the medical and the health insurance and and the economics of it, but let's just focus on the election, November. I don't know exactly what day it is, one of the the first Tuesday in November. Third, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What do we think is going to happen by then? We're only, what, uh, six less than six months away. Do you see us voting in person? Do you see us voting by mail? Um. Well, know. the wild what, what part is the lawsuits. You know, the lawsuits, and now there uh, have been even, I mean, when I wrote my um, my chapter several months ago, the only real lawsuits we were hearing about were the ones in Wisconsin 
they were going to postpone the election, and then uh, the Republicans filed a lawsuit. The election was forced to go forward. At the time that it was forced to go forward, it was too late to ask for an absentee ballot. So if you hadn't requested an absentee ballot, you had one of two choices, give up your franchise, give up your right to vote, or run the risk of voting and, and, and catching something. So um, there have been several lawsuits now. I mean, I believe the Massachusetts primary was on and off and on again in the, three times in the same day last week because of, of um, legal wranglings and the different courts deciding. So um, lawsuits will definitely be. And, and you, you see that happen in other things. One of the things I talk about in, the, in my chapter is the fact that in order to get on a, ba- on a ballot in the country, you have to gather signatures for most candidates. Um, and so sometimes candidates will submit signatures that you signed on a petition for your candidate to run. They hand in the signatures and a lawsuit will challenge the signatures on the, or challenge the person who collected the signatures. I hope that, uh, the pandemic will drive that signature gathering away because I think it's foolish. We're really the only country left in the world, the only democracy in the world that still does that. Um, but in the meantime, all of these lawsuits that say, oh, I thought I was a candidate. I'm not a candidate anymore. I thought I had an election day. Now it's been postponed. Oh, now it's back on. The, the, uh, the lawsuits will mess stuff up or can potentially. But in a lot of states in the United States, some people have, have said, oh, they're, they're going to pull shenanigans and, and cancel the election. Well, in many states across the country, you can't cancel the election. It's in that state's constitution that the election is held. So you might be able to pull that off in a couple of states, but you won't be able to pull it off across the country. So I I think it's going to go forward. I think there's going to be a lot of absentee balloting or a lot of mail-in balloting, but I think it's going to go forward. I think people, you know, only half of the country does its duty and votes in the first place, so we've got to get that number up anyway. (laughs) That's what I mean. I mean, it's so bad to begin with. We've got to get better, right? Let Let me go back to Dr. Zuckerman, if I may. Um, let's project here over the next six months up to election day. And I know you said it's really hard to pin down exactly what's happening. Things are, you know, fluctuating left and right, up and down. You need masks. You don't need masks. You can get it by touching things. Maybe you don't. So what do you, what do you see from a medical perspective? How do you see this evolving? And what do you think uh, maybe the medical profession's concerns will be about the election? Well, I, I, I hate to answer a question with a question, but the question really, in order to answer that question, the question that has to be answered first is what is going to be the acceptable risk of our society as a whole? So the, the risk will really never be zero, right? There, there's no zero risk. There's no zero risk of influenza, right? And, and I I hesitate to use that as an analogy because this is not influenza, but influenza is a seasonal virus that's transmitted through a respiratory route. So there is, you know, there's a Venn diagram of this coronavirus disease and influenza disease. And influenza can be um, fatal and very serious for certain demographics. And we live our lives. Every influenza season, we live our lives. And there have been influenza seasons that, in a six-month period, the United States has had 50 to 60,000 deaths. So that number is exceeded by this pandemic that we're experiencing right now, but it's not 
dwarfed by it, right? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a tenfold difference. So the question is, what is our society's cumulative acceptance of risk going to be? If it's zero, we're going to be socially distancing like this for a very long time. And we're not going to have ball games, and we're certainly not going to have elections where we go to a place and vote. Um, where I live in Utah, um, we all, well, we don't all, but we're moving towards mail-in ballots. And it seems to be working pretty well so far, as far as I can tell. How, how can we really tell? Pat could probably answer that better than I can. How can we really tell that the election is working well or not? It seems like the votes are being tallied. If your candidate wins. Well, actually, I live in Utah. I live in Utah, and I'm from New York, so my candidate actually never wins. Uh, here. <laughs> you know, we have five states already that do uh, straight-up um, mail-in ballots. They don't have any um, on-site ballots. It's an enormous cost saver for the municipality. When you ask, um, I spoke to the uh, Secretary of State for Maine about this when I was writing my chapter. Um, when you talk about how much it costs to have an election, you know, the, the Secretary of State might say a million or two bucks, but that's probably a tenth of the price because the real cost of an election is absorbed by the municipality. So they're the ones who hire the, the, the extra workers on election day to be at the polls, all the poll workers. They're the ones who rent, um, you know, the church hall or they, they pay for that. That stuff's not free. They pay to use the library. They, all of these municipal costs are eliminated completely over and over. I mean, every single municipality in the state doesn't have to pay that anymore. Um, and the cost savings are enormous. And if you're fighting over whether or not you're going to fire the gym teacher because your municipality doesn't want to raise property taxes, and you find out you can save all this money from mail-in ballots. Um, I think if an economic um, argument were being made right now instead of a health care one, it would be a no-brainer. You know, it would be the whole country would do what the other five states are doing. Uh, the other really good news about it is that it's, com- it's completely verifiable, and it's the way our entire armed forces votes. So if we thought that mail-in ballots were lousy, why have we been giving lousy service to our service people for the last 150 years? Um, so it, it, it's, it's, I think it's very verifiable. It's far more verifiable than an electronic uh, machine without a paper trail. Um, I mean, you take money out of your ATM and you get a paper trail, but you don't when you vote um, on some machines. So I think it's, I think that this is going to, you know, knock that door open that's been wedged shut by, you know, we've done it this way forever. Why do it some way new? Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I get the cost benefit. Uh, There's always that fear of change or resistance to change that's out there. And maybe this will help break through. But let's switch gears a little bit now. So we we think we're going to have an election. It's probably going to be mostly mail-in ballots. But, Will, probably the main issue in this election is is the virus, and and behind that is this dark thing that you wanted to talk about that we kind of avoided the first round through, <laughs> which is the whole looming health insurance issue that you wrote about. Maybe you could kind of give us some more bad news about what you're thinking or what you're afraid <laughs> of or what you're <laughs> the anxieties well, I, that have been building up in you. <laughs> Uh, there's, uh, yeah, there's a number of them, but um, the, the first thing, um, I think the 
one of the big problems is that uh, we have employer-based health insurance in the U.S., and, uh, you know, people don't realize what, what that really means. And if 30 million people lose their jobs, uh, then 30 million people are trying to get COBRA or some other form of insurance, which isn't, isn't quite the same as the insurance that you get when you have employer-based health insurance. So 30 million people without health insurance is uh, is a big deal. Um, and I don't know where we go. Um, I don't know where we go from there. You know, we spent, well, we've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to get everyone insured or um, how to cut costs and get everyone insured. And it's not, it's not really worked um, over the last 40 years. Uh, if Portable Care Act did um, actually control the increase in costs, it did insure a whole lot more people. But this is going to undo a lot of that uh, um, progress, I think. So um, if you have, so that's, that's really going to cause some problems. And I don't know how we're going to get out of that. Yeah. It's I interesting um, that one of, I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't know which one of you said yeah. it, but one of you said that um, people were hesitant now to, to go to the doctor because they're afraid to catch something, right? Well, mm-hmm. people have been hesitant to go to the doctor for decades because they can't pay for it. Yeah. So yep. it's only really been the poor that had this higher average of, of dropping dead from a stroke because they didn't go to the doctor when they should have, and now it's, it seems to be cutting across that economic uh, thread, so that now even if, and I don't, I'm and I'm staggered by the thirty million dollar thirty million number of people without health insurance added to the pot, but um, now people are understanding what it's like to be too poor to go to the doctor because the fear has changed to being afraid of getting sick instead of being afraid of losing your house. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah. My. Uh... My biggest concern with the thirty million is who's going to pay for their health care? How do we afford that? We've been we've we've been dropping money from helicopters, trillions of dollars the last few months. None of it was towards yeah. health insurance. You know, it was all towards uh, payroll protection and and uh, bailing out businesses. Uh, you know, it's just amazing that we haven't even touched on on the health insurance angle to this yet i think the hope is that we get everybody or most people back to work within a few months and you have a few months of cobra maybe some companies kept the coverage probably didn't but um wow you know that is a ticking time bomb and uh if people aren't going to the doctor because they don't have coverage, let alone because they're afraid. That doubles down on what Scott was saying, uh, the pent-up medical care that, that hasn't been um, serviced. And uh, what could that lead to? I think well, another big issue that, that is, has really been um, un, un, unveiled, if you will, although it has never been a secret, is the, the health insurance problems of our elderly population, um, particularly those who are in long-term care facilities. The long-term care facilities are epicenters, all of them, for this disease, and they're being decimated partly because of overcrowding and really substandard care. And that's what we've been giving to our elderly folks, again, particularly those who are in these facilities. And... Um, 
I mean, these if you if you actually look at the numbers of 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 COVID-19 infections and particularly of COVID-19 deaths, really more so than infections, the the death rate of this pandemic is exponentially higher in these nursing homes and other long-term care facilities and actually the the numbers would be much less threatening to us if we took out all those facilities and um, as our population gets older and the baby boomer generation gets to the ages where they well we are going to be potentially needing those services our society is going to have to figure out how to protect those people and how to pay for that protection because what's happening is not working. Yeah, we already I have, have a, a, I have a incredible a, national debt. Yeah, go ahead, Pat. I have a question for Scott. Scott, do you think that we'd have the reluctance to the stay-at-home orders or the or the um, or the sweeping sort of acceptance of ninety thousand deaths? If the if the um, large number of people dying were children instead of the elderly, do you think it's it's an almost an ageist thing? I mean, if if you could go out and not wear a mask and go home and kill your kid instead of your grandpa, do you think that the society would be handling it differently? Um, well, I think that that's actually a loaded question because it it. The question implies that our society is being more cavalier about this because of the fact that the elderly are being affected more so than younger people. I think there's some truth to that, and I think there's a segment of the population that's behaving that way. But I could make a case, I'm not necessarily making the case, but I could make a case that our society is being overly risk averse in this situation and that if instead of having this global lockdown we simply took those steps necessary to protect those who are at the greatest risk um, we perhaps could have avoided or could avoid the amount of economic devastation that we've of, that we've incurred I'm not I'm not saying that that's what we should have done. I'm just saying that that's one other way of looking at that. I suppose the one answer to your question is yes. A very quick answer is yes. I think there is ageism. I have heard people, public figures and even political figures say, well, they're old people and that's just natural selection. I mean, I don't know how much more crass and callous somebody could be. I think it was Governor I, Cuomo who actually said something like that, that old people die. And, you know, and I think that's kind of what we're getting to. When you look at the – let's just just look at the value. If You, you can't put these – it sounds really cold to try to put this into monetary terms, but there actually are calculations that actuaries do to calculate the value of a life, and it is based on remaining life and – I think people who say, well, he or she lived a good life when they're older, maybe we don't have the, we still have the sense that, well, at least they lived a good life. Whereas a two-year-old, a grandson or granddaughter perishing from this before they've even had a chance to grow up and experience a life, 
it's a much more it's a bigger loss as far as lifespan what the value of each lifespan is in each life you you really can't put a number on it and i know in my extended family we lost um, someone an elderly person who was in a nursing home it's in our family and that was the only person who's been affected by it and you know it's tragic no matter what how old they are who they are you know what they were doing even if they were in a, in a, a nursing home so and sometimes i think the fact that they're in nursing homes it's not like they're with us every day and that they're in front of us and that we're dealing with caring for them and in a lot of ways families uh, when they think of the elderly in the nursing home you're kind of handing off that care most of the time and you're uh, you know you become a visitor an occasional visitor so there's kind of out of sight out of mind for some people and i wonder if pat if that's sort of part of what you're talking about too um it's not like it's the, the yeah. child that you're picking up and playing with and you know that's in your face yeah, every don't... day I know my level of fear personally would just be so much more elevated. And I'm sorry for your loss, Lawrence. You lost someone. Yeah. You know, it seems like it, it, every time you turn around, though, it's, I, I, what was it, um, John Glenn's wife died? She was 100. You know, and I think that maybe makes that point like, wow, she was 100. You know, she had a quite a wonderful, married for 73 years to her husband, you know, and all that. You'd think, well, she did have a big full life. And, I, and when I think about the thought that it, I mean, that's my biggest thing I'm grateful for with this disease is that it doesn't really, and I'm sure I'm sure our pediatrician could speak to it more directly, but it doesn't seem to impact little kids the way it does, you know, people well, my we age. Act, so. But actually we are, just in the past two weeks, we've recognized and identified a, a fairly serious hyperinflammatory state that children are developing post, apparently, post post-COVID-19 infection. So the rhetoric that we were saying, and this is what I was talking about before in terms of the evolution of this, what we were saying two or three weeks ago, that children are not affected. True, they are less affected in terms of winding up on a respirator in a hospital, but now they seem, after weeks after the infection, um, they, they seem to be getting this hyperinflammatory state similar to a disease that's been recognized for quite some time called Kawasaki disease, and this can lead to multi-organ failure. So kids, and this is one of the fascinating things about this, why are children affected differently than other demographics? Um, So that whole concept of children being immune or not susceptible to the infection may be changing even as we speak. Yeah. Well, we've got about 10 minutes yeah. to go. Let's try to bring this home. Uh, I used to have a boss who said, I want solutions, not problems. <laughs> and we'd come <laughs> in his office and we'd be saying, oh, but the sky's falling and this and that and everything's terrible. And he'd be like, I want solutions, not problems. Tell me what you're going to do about it. How are we going to get out of this? Give me a path forward. And, uh, you know, sometimes you didn't have it. And what you learned was you don't even go in the office unless you have a solution that you're going to (laughs) suggest. (laughs) But I'll go to Dr. Zuckerman. I'll put you on the spot first. If you think about how are we going to get out of this, do you see a way forward? What what do you see happening? Well, I think what has to happen is that the general public has to become 
more accepting of the science that's out there. So when data comes available and doctors present that data, that resistance to change that you spoke about earlier has to be put aside. Quite honestly, and this will speak to something Pat may have to say about this, our leaders, the leadership of our country, of our states, of our counties, has to present a more unified front. Our country is really splintered right now, and that, along with the rapidly changing data, is making it so that, as you said before, Lawrence, people don't know, should I wear a mask, shouldn't I wear a mask? Well, it's because that information is changing every day. So the general public has to step back from their own fears. The politicians have to step back from their own agendas and look at the data, allow the doctors to present, doctors and scientists to present the data, and then follow the advice that may be different one day to the next. But whatever the advice is, we have to try to follow it and that's the way to emerge from this. Well, but let's hope we can do that. Will, how about you? What do you see happening going forward? Remember how you told us to avoid the office? Well, I'm avoiding no, I'm not going to avoid the office. <laughs> I, um, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, I think we have to bring science back from the dead, and I think we have to sort of give science. I mean, so there's two areas, right? So you make the the science has to be respected and it is evolving really quickly, but you know, we don't respect scientists and science uh, the way or understand it the way I think would be healthier. So once the science is there and we uh, respect the science, then politicians can argue about uh, our values and how we apply that science. And that's, and to my mind, that's, you know, it's going to involve testing um, and it's going to be, Slowly but surely, we're going to be able to reopen, and we're going to be, I don't know how long it's going to take to get back to so-called normal, but um, we'll get there. That's as positive as I get. Um, in terms of paying for the health insurance, in terms of health insurance, uh, I'm hoping that you're right and that um, we'll quickly get back to work. I don't know if that's the case, but I think firms are adapting. Firms are figuring out ways to, you know, open up um, safely and, and do it right. So I, I think... Um, Humans, you know, there's some bad ones among us, but um, in general, we're all trying to do the right thing. And I think um, if we get the science right and uh, um, we respect each other, then I think uh, we'll get back eventually. You know, it's not going to be the way it was, the huge structural change in our economy, and I don't know um, how that's going to play out, but I think I think we'll be okay. Yeah, Will, I, I hear you about the testing, and I worry that we're going to rip the band-aid off here and just let it go and everybody's going back to work it may maybe not day one but it's it's going to ramp up pretty quick because the economy the government can't buy the economy and keep us all employed through this uh, payroll protection and unemployment so yeah, we're going to have to roll the dice at some point yeah I mean, don't you think the test i mean the testing's there they, they just approved that the, the new tests are uh, they're there, um, and so it's just a matter of getting them out there. But I don't think you can go ahead too quickly if you don't know who has it or, or how you know how it spreads. So 
So we don't. We've only had a, you know one percent of the population or something like that tested in the U.S. And it's just not enough to to go forward, really. Yeah. But one of the things there. to just consider about text, testing, though, Will, is, and this is one of my concerns, is that as tests get put on the market super fast and they're fast-tracked to the general public, a lot of the tests that have been put out on the market are not reliable. They either lack the sensitivity or the specificity, so... They're yeah, I know. either giving you false mm-hmm. positives or false negatives, either of which can cause really big problems. So I have some but, concerns about fast-tracking tests to the market. I, I, I definitely agree with you in terms of the, the possibility and the probability that there's going to be a lot of shams out there, but I do believe in human, in our capacity to do things, and I think the Rutgers test is, as I think, um, as reliable as the I don't know, the nostril test or the swab test, and that's a big deal. You know that how they administer it, I don't know, but um, the fact that it seems to be as reliable as the the nasal test is um, and less expensive is is I'm trying to be positive here. I mean, I know there's scammers out there. <laughs> Another scammers out there. Well, yeah, Will. We're going to get it done. <laughs> That's as positive as we get. I was going to say, I'll help you out here, and I'll, I'll, I'll shine the light on Pat, and we'll pretend Pat's running for vice president again, and uh, now you got the <laughs> – you're at the debate, now you've been asked the question, so what would you do about the coronavirus going forward? How do you get us out of this, vice president? As a politician, I would remind uh, my colleagues that old people vote more. So if you're all like okay with them dropping dead, you might want to think twice about that because they're not going to appreciate it that you didn't care if they do actually make it to November 3rd. Um, yeah, that is a big problem, though, is old people vote more. And um, I don't – I think I think, uh, I think it was Scott that said something about the division, or maybe it was you, Lawrence, but uh, we can't have a divided country like this. A great leader would be a leader who could pull us together. And, you know, you look at the, uh, the approval ratings of anybody in, in an in a emergency, in a disaster. I think President Bush's uh, approval rating after 9-11 was like 70%. You know, they go through the roof. Even people who don't like you like you because, you know, you're our captain and our ship's taking a big beating on here on the sea. And um, that's not working right now for the president. His approval ratings are down in the low 40s. And uh, that might sound good on a normal day, but in the middle of a crisis, it's not very high. So um, the people want someone who's going to say, I know it's scary. Honestly, I'm a little scared too, but we're going to make it. Um, and we aren't all going to make it, but we're going to do this together. And, and we just don't have that. Um, and, and that's a crisis on both sides. Um, so is that going to come out of nowhere? I don't know. I, I mean, it's going to be, it's, I'm fascinated by this stuff. I, you know, I hate to think that if, I were a Roman, I'd be going to the Colosseum, but I do, I kind of watch this bloodbath as a gladiator, you know, or not a gladiator, watching the gladiators thinking, holy cow, you know, is he really going to take that guy's head off? I can't believe this. You know, that's how I look at politics. Um, well, so, so I do hope for a unification of some kind 
But um, the other what? problem that the president has is that he's losing, he's he's hemorrhaging elder elder support. The elderly yeah. are are bailing from his campaign enormously, and and I think that means that this. I have no crystal ball when it comes to elections. I'm lousy at it, but I do think that tosses this into the complete unknown category. Well, we are out of time, and Pat, I like your saying that we're going to make it. So, <laughs> oh yeah, all for it. The three of you for joining us. It's been a great show. Hope to have you back on again. This has been the Sunbury Press Book guys. Show on the BookSpeak Network. Be sure to check out our books at www.sunburypress.com or search for our titles on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers worldwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are hundreds more available on the BookSpeak Network. You can find our channel on blogtalkradio.com. Thank you for listening. Um.